Remember how I said we were done with Count Ugolino? Well, we're not. Sorry. <laughs> I promised as much, and I can't deliver it. I'll talk to you about that in a bit. But for now, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, and we are indeed walking on in Inferno from Count Ugolino. No worries. But there's one last thing to say after we deal with the passage. What's the passage for this episode of the podcast? It is Inferno, Canto 33, lines 91 through 117. Boy, we are coming to the back of the next to the last Canto of Inferno. It's kind of hard to believe believe that we have gotten here. It is moving on from Ugolino and in fact crossing to the third level of the ice sheet, the third ring of the final ice sheet of hell, where we are with our Pilgrim Dante and his guide Virgil. If you're just dropping in here to the podcast, wow, we are deep toward the center of the earth. Good luck walking with us on this ice sheet. Here's the passage, which you can find on my website, markscarborough.com. Print it off, make notes, drop comments. Here it goes. We hiked farther on, out to the part of the ice sheet that so crudely enwraps another group of people. These faces weren't turned down, but craned up at us. Down there, their tears prevent their tears. Their sorrow, which gets blocked up over their eyes, is then backed up inwardly to make their affliction worse. The first tears become a frozen knot, which then, like a crystal visor, fills up the cup under their brow with more tears. At this point, although my face, like a callus, had gone numb from the bitter cold and had no more feeling in it, it seemed as if I felt some definite wind. So I, my master, who makes this wind move? Has not every bit of vapor been laid to rest down here? And he to me, you'll soon get to the spot where your own eyes will give you the answer for the source of these gusts. That's when one of the damned on the icy crust cried out to us, Oh, cruel souls, so totally cruel that you are damned to the last stop on this road. Lift these hard veils from my eyesight so I can vent a little of the pain that seizes my heart. Just a bit before my tears freeze solid again. And so I to him, If you want me to help you, Tell me who you are. If I don't ease your distress, may I be sent down to the bottom of this glacier. We're going to break it there in the middle of the interaction with this figure on the ice sheet. One of the last figures that we actually speak to on the ice sheet with Pilgrim Dante and his guide Virgil. In fact, the last, the end. I'm going to go back and talk about Ugolino. <laughs> One more time, just can't leave the guy alone. And then we'll work our way through this passage, through some of the interpretive questions, nods, and a little bit of trickiness inside what seems like a pretty normal description of the hike across the ice sheet. Back to Ugolino. 
It all has to do with a listener to this podcast from the UK. She asked that I not give her name, and I won't. She, however, wrote me a very intriguing hypothesis through my website, and I wanted to share it with you. If you remember, Ugolino is eating Archbishop Ruggieri's brains out. He stops, he wipes his mouth, he tells Dante the Pilgrim, and it's the high went Virgil next to Dante. This entire story about being locked in a tower by Archbishop Bishop Ruggieri. There's a question of whether he ate his children. I tend to agree with all of the early commentators up to the middle 19th century that there is no question he did not eat his children. They would be four and five days old. It's not possible to eat that as a human. Let me just say, would you pull a piece of meat out of your garbage four days after it's been in there? I don't think so. But I think he wants you to think he ate his children to explain his savage actions in hell and to drive the pathos of his story through the roof. But he leaves his tale in murk after a great deal of clarity. That's all of what I said. Now, here's what this listener from the UK questioned me about. She said that it's interesting that at the end, when Dante engages in his big diatribe against the Pisans, that in fact, Dante may be reacting to the children in the story more than to Ugolino. And she claimed that I said that Dante didn't have any reaction that we could tell to Ugolino's story, but she said... The definite reaction is toward the children. He names the other two in that condemnation of Pisa, and the former two are named inside the story itself. And she gave the hypothesis that perhaps Dante here is feeling the weight of his own exile, that he is away from his children and his rage at Pisa, but specifically at Ugolino, has to do with the ability of a father to see his own children, and that that rage brought out by his exile of leaving him childless and on the run when his own children are back in Florence is being expressed inside this passage. I think that's a brilliant hypothesis. Now, I want to tell you, I told this person that I don't think that that's provable. And she then wrote me back and agreed that that is actually not provable from the text. But she finds it a compelling psychological argument underneath the text itself that Dante's rage at the loss of his own children is being worked out here at the bottom of Inferno. I love this hypothesis. I can't find any spot in the text in which I can say, oh, look, there it is. That's how it works. But I can say it is interesting that Dante is so set on naming all four of the boys. And it seems as if the specific ire at Pisa is directed at letting the children die, not at letting Ugolino die, or even at Ugolino's treachery, but having put the children to, as the text says, such a cross, thereby making them even more Christ figures. I find this hypothesis really an intriguing psychological underpinning under the text. Again, I can't prove it, but I sure do like the notion of it. Now let's turn to our text at hand here and the walk beyond Ugolino. It starts, we hiked farther on, and I just want to stop right here. <laughs> the first words, I can't get any farther than that. Hiked farther on. Okay, well, why do I want to stop there? Because 
The thing that makes comedy so interesting and makes it so successful is the constant return to the journey. Over and over again, we return to the walk itself, the walk across the known universe. We may get into all kinds of digressive stories. Later, we're going to get into all kinds of digressive theology and arguments about, believe it or not, embryology. Still, nonetheless, the point is the walk. And the walk has to keep going. And I love that we keep coming back to the narrative structure. The transitions here are smooth as glass. There's no real way to tell when we move from one part of Cockatus to the other, except maybe by the way that the damned are facing. We'll talk about that. So the damned themselves are the only remnants of a physical landscape. Just think about this for a minute. Think about how landscape-oriented Inferno has been. I mean, they're at Chaco and the gluttons and lying there in all that filth and the rain and the hail. Or think about the ruined precipice that Virgil and Dante climb out onto to see the lustful out on the wind. Or think about the boiling river of blood. Or think about the suicides and their forest and the harpies sitting up in the trees. Or think about the ditches of fraud of the Malabolgia and how how those ditches are so geographical, rocky, they're so part of an ecological landscape. When we get down here to the bottom, the only feature is the dam. The heads of the damned make it all up. That's what's left down here. And surely that gives us a creepy, weird, and wonderfully imaginative feeling about what this journey is like as it loses all geographical and ecological features. He says we hiked farther on out to the part of the ice sheet that so crudely enwraps another group of people. These faces weren't turned down but craned up at us. I should let you know there's a translation problem in this line. Singleton in his grand commentary reports that this is actually more difficult than we might imagine. Most people these days think that it goes this way. In the first rung, Kaina, the heads are facing down so the tears can run out of their eyes. They're not in quite so much pain. In the second rank, in Antonora, they're facing out. They're looking out, and so now their faces are more exposed to the cold and the wind. And here, where we've come to, their faces are turned up and we get this description of the tears freezing in their eyes and filling their eyes, as it were, with crystal. This is how it's always been judged. And in fact, Durling, the Dante, the now late Dante to Durling, goes even so far as to say, now these faces are facing toward the wind. I don't actually see that in the text. I don't know how Durling says that, that these faces are facing into the wind and the others are aren't. I didn't hear them not facing the wind before. I don't actually see them facing the wind here, but I do see it craned up. And Singleton's point is that the line is actually not turned down, but fully reversed. 
Most people, again, see this as now the faces are not pointing downward. They're craned back and looking up so that the tears can freeze inside their eyelids. But Singleton says it could be, given the way the line is ambiguous, not turned down but fully reversed, that these souls are actually stretched out prone on the ice with their faces pointing up at Dante. So you should just know that while most translators see it as a direction of the head problem, Singleton does say it is okay to think that the previous two levels had sinners sunk in the ice up to their necks with their heads in various positions. And now what we're looking at are the sinners who are prone, flat, frozen into the ice, flat. So half their body would be in the ice and the half exposed with their heads looking up at us. An interesting translation problem. Down there, the text goes on, their tears prevent their tears. I love this weird kind of, what, tautology? Their tears prevent their tears. It's just that way in the medieval Florentine. Their crying prevents their crying. Their sorrow prevents their sorrow. What they're doing prevents the very doing of the thing they're doing. It's getting very meta and very philosophical. Their sorrow, which gets blocked up over their eyes, is then backed up inwardly to make their affliction worse. There's a reference here to a passage from the Sermon on the Mount. It's the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 7, verse 3. And it's where Jesus says, don't take the splinter out of your neighbor's eye when there's a beam or a big log of wood in your own eye. In other words, don't pick at some minor thing in your neighbor when, in fact, you got this major thing wrong with you. So there's probably running around behind this a reference. I think Pietro di Dante is the first, Dante's own son is the first one to point this out, running around behind the text. But you should also know that Dante knows that water expands when it freezes. He's read his Aristotle. He knows it exactly from even his own physical experience of the world. Water expands as ice. This has got to be very painful. If your head is either craned back or you're prone lying on your back in the ice and you're face up and you're crying and your tears are freezing in the cups of your eyes, that moisture has got to expand and it's got to be extremely painful. Now, there is a psychological impulse here. That is because they can't continue to cry. Therefore, their sorrow is directed inward. But part of that sorrow has to be the pain of the ice sheet that is actually inside their eyes because they continue to cry even though they're now wearing, as the text says, a crystal visor. Dante explains it. The first tears become a frozen knot, which then, like a crystal visor, fills up the cup under the brow with more tears. At this point, and this is what's so interesting, is this shift. Although my face, like a callus, had gone numb from the bitter cold and had no more feeling in it. So Dante is feeling less while the damned are increasing exponentially their suffering because they can't express their tears. Just think about the difference there between having no feeling and having 
too much feeling that can't be expressed. That's going to play out in the passage. Going on, it seemed as if I felt some definite win. So I, then he says, my master, he turns to Virgil. Oh, Virgil, he's back. Virgil, who makes this wind move? Has not every bit of vapor been laid to rest down here? All right, let's stop. There is a real problem right here. Pietro di Dante points out that this wind is a infernal inversion of the mighty wind of Pentecost in Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, verse 3 in the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit comes down on the apostles so that they can speak and preach in any tongue, there is a mighty wind and then the tongues of fire descend on them. Now, Pietro de Dante claims that this is all a weird inversion of the Pentecostal wind. Maybe I'm willing to buy it. What I'm not willing to buy is the word who. Dante's question is, who makes this wind move? Who, not what? Why is he asking who? What kind of prediction is going on here? In fact, someone is making this wind move. But why would the pilgrim anticipate that? It seems to me you have two options here. Either the poet has played his hand in advance, and the poet really knows what's happening with this wind and why there's a great wind down here. And so, yes, the pilgrims say, who makes this wind? Because it is indeed a who. Or... The pilgrim is beginning to be able to anticipate the journey. That's a harder claim to make and one that I don't think you can fully support by the text. Later, toward the back of Purgatorio, you're going to be able to make that claim that the pilgrim has reached a spot where he can anticipate the journey ahead. I don't know that I can make that claim here. It seems to me more of a poetic gaffe because the question should be, what makes this win? Why is, why is there a win? Who assumes that you know what's ahead? Why is the wind such a problem? Because the idea is that wind is caused by the sun. Here's the whole medieval construct of wind. Wind is caused by the sun evaporating water and heating it. The idea then here is that there is no sun, so there is no heat, so there is no evaporation, or in Dante's terminology, no vapor, and thus no wind. There can't be any wind here because there's no sun to cause vapors to rise. So Dante is at some pains to say, wait a minute, how can there be wind down here now? Again, he says, who makes the wind? But still, the question is, there's no sun, there's no heat, we're on an ice sheet. (laughs) How come there's no wind? Clearly, Dante's never actually hiked out on a glacier because there is plenty of wind out on a glacier. My gosh. But at least in the medieval thought and in while Dante would understand medieval science, he's basically saying no sun, no heat, no vapor. So no wind. So why do I feel a wind on my callous face? The passage goes on. Virgil says, 
he to me, you'll soon get to the spot where your own eyes will give the answer for the source of these gusts. Oh, Virgil returns. Finally, the longest silence in Inferno. Virgil has been silent for forever. He hasn't said a word. He hasn't pointed in any direction. And the irony here is so thick, I can barely stand it. Virgil reappears in the text to tell Dante that he he doesn't need Virgil. Virgil reappears to say, hey, your own eyes are going to tell you what or who makes the wind just up ahead. So you don't need me. You're going to see it. This, to me, is one of the funniest spots in all of Inferno. Virgil has been silent for so long. Virgil has been such a sure guide. Virgil has been such a companion. Virgil has been such a savior in bad spots, carrying the pilgrim in and out of ditches. Virgil has done so much so far. Then he falls silent, and he comes back in to say, well, you don't need me because you're going to see it straight ahead. I actually think that there's quite a bit of humor here. The last time Virgil told a pilgrim about the towers that were giants. Remember the pilgrim as they approach the giants who line the ninth circle and the pit of Cocytus. The pilgrim thinks he sees medieval towers and Virgil says, no, they're not towers. They're actually giants. That's at Canto 31, lines 29 through 33, if you want to go back and look at it. Virgil actually explains what's ahead. Here, Virgil does not explain what's ahead. Instead, Virgil says, well, you'll see it when we get up to it. Mm, Indeed, we will. We'll get up to it, to the who. And we will figure out who's making this wind. The text goes on. That's when one of the damned in the icy crust cried out to us, oh, cruel souls, so totally cruel that you were damned to the last stop of this road. Lift these hard veils from my eyesight. This sinner here on the ice the last sinner that we will actually speak to on the ice. This sinner mistakes Dante and Virgil for someone bound farther down to the last fourth rung of Cocytus. Wouldn't we like to understand the full irony here. I mean, this guy can't see. His eyes are full of ice. He hears two people talking, and he says, oh, okay, you two, you've got to be really bad dudes because you're clearly heading on down to the last, walking on down to the very last rung, and stop on your way down to that last rung, And wipe the frozen crystals out of my eyes. There is this weird way in which the souls are anticipating that Virgil and Dante are walking on down. Is this how souls get into Cocytus? They walk on down and walk on past? It's not the Minos throwing them over the cliff thing. And while we're stopped here, let's just say that I always think that there is one giant imaginative mistake in Inferno that I never see a soul land in front of Virgil and Dante as they walk. Wouldn't you like to see them walking across this ice sheet and suddenly thunk a soul lands right in front of them that Minos has thrown over the edge? We do see a demon bring a soul down to one of the pits of fraud. 
But wouldn't it be cool to see a soul land plunk into the river of boiling blood or land plunk into the wood of the suicides and start turning into a tree or, I don't know, land plunk in the river sticks with the angry and the sullen. We never see that. Dante will realize that that's a problem. Because when we get <laughs> because when we get up on Purgatorio, we're actually going to see a soul stand up and be redeemed. And I think Dante is filling out the imaginative landscape by doing that and maybe realizing not quite, but maybe realizing that there's still more to explore in this imaginative landscape. Listen, Dante the Poet has created an imaginative landscape so great, so large, so huge, that I can actually posit deficits in it that I wish he would fill in. And then the thing that's so weird is he kind of does fill that in later on in the poem. The question of the corporeality of the souls, he's going to try to answer that in Purgatorio. I mean, he is really working through this and the capaciousness of the landscape, the capaciousness of the imaginative world that is being created is, is, is unbelievable. So many nooks and crannies that it's taking our poet time to figure it out. But I can tell you, as we approach the bottom of Inferno, I just always wish when I get to the end of Inferno that at least once... I had seen a soul come over the edge and land with a thunk right in front of Virgil and Dante. So this guy asked for a kindness <laughs> from two travelers on the road. There is an irony here. We can talk more about it next time. But essentially, he's asking for a kindness from a traveler on a road in the same way that guests and hosts operate. He's asking for someone, in this case, it's an inversion. He's asking for the guest, the traveler, to do him, the host, the guy who lives here, a kindness is an inversion of what hosts are supposed to do for guests. And he's asking for them to clear the hard veils from his eyesight, as its text says, so I can vent a little more of the pain that seizes my heart just a bit before my tears freeze solid. Again, apparently it is so painful not to be able to cry or let me put it this way, to cry and then keep crying and yet not be able to cry. I mean, have you ever been here before? I, I mean... Honestly, I have. Where you cry so much, you actually have no more tears, and then you keep crying, and it's like dry crying. It's the weirdest, most painful sensation. It hurts. I, I, I've done this several times in my life, as we call it around here, ugly crying, where you cry all your tears out, and then you keep crying. Ugh. It's so disheartening. It's so unbelievable. And to think that these people are doing it because the tears have frozen into their eyes and they want to cry more in their pain of being frozen in the ice sheet, but they can't. So Dante says to him, if you want me to help you, tell me who you are. Indeed, he's going to in the next episode of this podcast. If I don't ease your distress, may I be sent down to the bottom of this glacier. Now, this is the bit that's always so interesting. Dante is headed down to the bottom of this glacier. He may not know exactly who or what is ahead of him that's making the wind, 
but he knows he's going on down to the bottom. And so he makes this promise that if I don't alleviate your suffering by wiping the frozen crust out of your eyes, may I be sent to the center of the earth, which is indeed where he's headed. This is disingenuous. It may be, depends on how you read it. It may be treacherous. It's a little bit false. It's arch. Do we smack our pilgrim here? Do we say, hey, don't be so inhuman. Don't play around with people who are in pain. Or do we say, well, it it is the damned. Who is he to alleviate the suffering of the damned? It's a very weird little statement because Dante is headed down to the bottom, so whether he helps this guy or not doesn't matter. He's going to go on down. The pilgrim must know that, and so this promise must be funny. Is it really funny? It seems inhuman. Is it supposed to be a little bit callous? We're told his face is callous and he has no more feeling. Is this part of the callousness found in the piece itself? Is the pilgrim becoming increasingly callous? Is that a good thing? Is being callous aligning yourself with the justice of God? Oh, I don't like that. Don't like that at all. But I think that might be the answer. I don't think robbing myself of my human compassion is aligning myself closer to the mm, what judgment of God. Oh, it's always that problem. How can I be more compassionate than this God? Oh, huge question beyond the confines of this podcast. So let's just move on to the next episode. To get there, you're going to have to subscribe to the podcast, rate it. That would be fantastic. Thank you for the recent ratings that have appeared in both the UK and in the US Apple Podcast sites. I appreciate both of you the effort it took to drop a comment. Thank you for that. And we're going to move on to the end of this canto. And we're going to find out who this is. He's going to name himself which is going to be a problem in and of itself. But we'll talk about that when we get to it in the next episode of this podcast. So let's keep walking. we got more ice sheet to go. Keep those snowshoes on. I'm Mark Scarborough, and I will see you on the next episode of Walking with Dante. Walking with Dante.